My name's Ash. I'm the pastor here at Christchurch, so uh, let me give you a warm welcome. We're looking at um, Psalm 126 uh, today, where the series we've got is Songs for the Road Ahead. Um, and I'm a, of increasingly, I'm convicted that, that, we, that this book is the book to go to when you think about how you're going to get through the next uh, few years of your life. And I'm increasingly convicted that we don't know the older I get, the more I realize that we don't know what's coming and what is in front of us, and we're going to need to hang on to this book uh, more dearly. I've got two questions. Um, I think the psalm leads us this direction. Two questions that I want to pose and put over the sermon and hopefully answer them as we go through. The first one is, can we place too much hope in heaven? Can we focus on this too much? Is it responsible of me to keep telling you, wait for heaven, focus on heaven, God's going to make everything all right. Hang on for that day. Can we, is that reasonable? Can we place too much hope in heaven? And what do we do as Christians with our sorrows? What do we do with the sorrows that we have? And then a, like a side-on question to that, is it possible that we can waste our sorrows? Think about that concept. What do we do with the fact that we get really sad? What do we do with the fact that sorrows come? This psalm, I think, explores that idea and then tells us perhaps there's something in that. But let's deal with the first question first, and it's hot and it's sticky, so I'm going to be quick and as like a blunt an instrument as I can possibly be. Can we place too much hope in heaven? Uh, there's been a song on the nation's lips for the last six months, hasn't there? There's been a song on, even if you don't really like football, there's been a song. It was our, in, in my house, it was the alarm call. I'd shout at Alexa first thing in the morning, play Three Lions, Alexa, wake up my kids with this glorious tune, Three Lions on a Shirt. There's, there's various reasons that I think that this song resonates with us. It's catchy. If football followers can pick it up, it's got a catchy tune, hasn't it? And they've deliber- it's genius, really, because they've written this song deliberately targeting the vulnerable football faithful because you can't not sing it three lines on a shirt. It's just so easy. It's coming home. It's coming home. Football's coming home. It just falls, flows from your tongue, doesn't it? So it's catchy. It's nostalgic. It gets you to dream about bygone days and you sort of forget the, the hurt that's involved with them and you just remember the good bits. If you follow the lyrics of the song, it just it, it draws up the nostalgia. In you. It's a little bit imperialistic. There's a, you know, it's a bit controversial. It says football's coming home. We made this thing. And part of us, probably right, you know, rightly or wrongly, goes, yeah, this is our thing. And it's coming home. And we sort of have that sort of healthy, unhealthy ownership on it. On it. And we're also really desperate to win, aren't we? We're just, we're just desperate to win. But I think the song speaks of more than that. I think, I think it's a genius song on one level, but I think it's just such a genius song. It speaks of this idea of home. As the nation sung it these last few weeks, we've had in our minds, I think Boris sort of floated the idea of a bank holiday Monday, didn't he? We've had in our minds this moment in time when everything will sort of fall into place. And it's, it's all bent on the fact that we're going to win this football thing. It's, you know, that's the ticket into it. Football's coming home. It'll come home if we could just win it. And if we could just win it, then wouldn't everything be amazing? Boris would give us a bank holiday. There's um, some of the lyrics in the 98 version of this song, uh, Skinner and Badil, you know, raked it for all it was worth, he brought it out again. And, it, and the lyrics went, it could have been all songs in the street. It was nearly complete. It was nearly 
so sweet. They just sell you this idea of like utopia. Oh, like we were so close. And one of the really difficult things for me this week, but I think one of the difficult, no, one of the difficult things for our country this week has been realizing just how agonizingly close we were. And yet, I mean, it almost unfolded as the match went on. When you see, we just missed one pen. And those football hooligan types were trying to bust into Wembley. And then as soon as we lose, the racist tweets come flying out. And you realize, man, we thought we were so close to this utopic moment. And actually, look at where we are Monday morning. We are miles away from that. We're still loaded with all the same problems that we would have had before. One of the reasons uh, that I mentioned the Three Lions song and its emotive resonance is I want you to appreciate, I don't know if we could stick it up on the, on the screen, I want you to grasp the significance of this psalm. So I tell you, I, I try and sell this song to you and I say, look how big a moment this song's been because I want you to grasp the significance of this song. The song that that we've owned for the last five or six weeks and has been really near to our hearts has been there because we've wanted to win a footy tournament. It's been about a game and a bit of metal. That's, that's what this has been about. This psalm is about the idea of the nation of Israel, God's people literally getting to go home. Having been raped and pillaged and massacred and butchered and dragged out of their homeland. This song is about that moment. So don't have footballs coming home in your head. Have, have, yeah, have like the, the news at 10 when they're focusing on the Syrian widowed woman who, who looks like lovingly at this house that she's got to leave. You know the sort of pictures that come through the TV screens when you realize that all over the world there are people with this story that have been pulled out of their home and they're not allowed to dwell on their street anymore, and they've got to leave their way of life behind. And their traditions are all gone, and their lives are sort of turned upside down. This song is about a bunch of people like that, a bunch of people like that having experienced that, people in exile for years and years, looking like there's just no way in the world that they're ever gonna get back home. And yet, in this moment, they can sing this song because they get back home. Verse 1 through, through 3, read them with me. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, so think of this as like the football's coming home song, we were like those who dreamed. They were like, we can't believe that we're going to get to come back here and pick up the stories of our lives. We're going to get to come back here and that garden that we've been building for the last, you know, that my, you know, that my family's been in for generations and generations, I'm going to go and get back there. You know, the traditions that my family have been connected to. You know, the, this land that my, you know, the people of Israel is interconnected with. I'm going to go back and pick that up again. Our mouths were filled with laughter. Our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations. This is like the people looking on. The Lord has done great things for them. Verse 3. And this is what they say about it as they realize what's happening. The Lord has done great things for us. And we are filled with joy. So I tell you the three-line song to engage you with this. But God's word gives us Psalm 126 so that we now, us, people to come from us, grasp 
the incredible position that we have. That we stop out of our everyday lives and we think about the, the position that we hold. The fact that we can sing, I don't know if you realize this is our story, we can sing confidently about our future. We can sing confidently about our ways. Let me just fill in the gaps for you behind that school of thought. Zion, which is mentioned here, Jerusalem, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Zion and Jerusalem is a, it's a physical place. It exists. You know, there's a, it's a geographical point on the map. But when it's talked about in the Bible, although it's that on one level, it becomes so much more than that. It's the place and the term for the way in which God dwells with his people. It's the way in which God dwells with his people. We come to be familiar with this thing called the temple. When we see in, this, in the story of the temple the, the practices that people have got to observe in order to dwell with God and have God dwell with them, have this holy being dwell with them. Um, it says in John 1.14, because the story goes, as we read it in our Bible, and this is, this, is why we've got to, this is why I would say to you, if you're watching at home, this is why you've got to engage with the character of Jesus, because the Bible doesn't let us off with thinking that we can engage with God in any other way. It says to us that Jesus becomes that, becomes the temple. The Word became flesh, John 1, 14. Maybe you'll know this if you've read your Bible a bit. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So the word there, the original word, the Greek word, is tabernacled. It's an odd ad adjective. It means that he, he pitched up the idea of sticking a tent where people are already living. That's what it says of Jesus. He pitched up and he moved in with us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus, in the storyline of, of the Bible, as we try and figure out who God is, became that, embodied that became the way, became the temple, became the tabernacle, became the way in which people engage with God, became the way in which God dwells with people. It's a huge thing he says about himself. There's another moment in Jesus' story. And Jesus is def he's defending his, his authority to the Jews. He's just kicked some people out of the temple for money laundering, that sort of thing. And the Jews, you know, chasing him and get on his back and they're saying, what gives you the authority to do this? Jesus says these words, you can destroy this temple and I'm going to raise it up again in three days. Now, they think he's talking about the physical temple and they're going, you can't, nobody's going to do that. It took years and years to build. Nobody's going to build it or destroy it in that amount of time. But Jesus, when he uses this sentence, it's one of the moments where the Bible really comes together. He says, I'm not talking about the physical temple. I'm talking about my body. Jesus is saying, in my death and resurrection, as people see me lay my life down, as people see it lifted up again, as people realize that God is speaking through this moment and this action, through faith in that, through belief in that, it'll be like walking into and walking with the presence of God. That's what it says. So now, for us today, and I think, I think this is kind of wild. I think this is amazing. It kind of stops me in my track. For people who believe, so I'm going to read out another verse uh, to you. It's in 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Do you not know? Somebody tell Joe that he's still on. 
That really threw me. I was like, what is that noise? Cheers, Joe. So we, yeah, you can sneak back in, all right. <laughs> we now are the embodiment of that promise. God dwells with us by his spirit. Corinthians 6.19 says, and Paul writes pretty aggressively, he's saying, do you not know this is how it is? Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? And he says that to us individually, and he says that to the church at Corinth collectively. He says, don't you know that all this is wrapped up in you? Do you know what that means for us today? It means that we have that song. But when we have that song, it's not in the sense that we get to rock. We don't celebrate it like we get to rock up to this place in the Middle East and see Jerusalem and own it in that way. We get to celebrate it in that we are people who have been miles away from God's holiness in exile, and yet we get to hold on to the promises of God. We, we can have the kind of thoughts that have been in our heads this week, like the horrible words you might have thought about your kids or your partner or somebody that's just cut you up on the road, the, hor- you know, the, the ugliness of humanity. We can have that backdrop. We can, we can have lived lives. You know, we say we're Christians, we can have, and you look back on your life and you think, have I done, have I done really anything that's, that you could be described as that holy? We can, we, can live, we can live in the reality of being that far away from God, and yet we can own these promises the same way these people do. We can walk in his ways and be assured of that, of what it's like. We can feel him, we can experience him changing us and working within us. We can be certain about our future. We can be certain about our home Um, the same way that these people could. We can have that real sense of completeness, of home, assurance of salvation. Now, maybe maybe as I, I do that, I rattle off through that little spiel. Maybe you go, really? I don't know if you ever catch yourself when you're getting excited about your faith, thinking, am I putting too much, you know, am I, am I unbalanced here? Should I be so confident in heaven? Should I be focused on it quite that much? I don't know if that's ever been pointed at you. It's been pointed at me a few times as somebody who's a pastor and who always points people to heaven and eternity. Is it okay that you put so much confidence in this moment? Isn't that irresponsible to ask people just to focus on an eternal comfort? Shouldn't we be a bit more pragmatic? Shouldn't we just go like 25% heaven, 75% now? Isn't that a bit more of a reasonable thing to do? Is it irresponsible for us as Christians to go, oh, we long for heaven. You know, when we sing of it in those moments, when we sing for God's ways, when we sing about the assurance of, of our salvation, is it, is it naive of us to do that? I want to suggest to you that it's not, and that you should, however far in you are with heaven at the moment, I don't know how far in you are with heaven at the moment, you should go further, go deeper into it. I'm going to use it, go about it an odd way. There's going to be a picture pop up on the screen, I think. It's a snowflake. So the illustration I'm going to use is that of fractals. It's a mathematical, geometrical term. And those of you that know me well will know that I'm above my peer grade when I'm getting involved with these sort of examples. But it's worth it because I get to Christ in the end. A fractal is a curve or geometrical figure, each part of which has the same statistical character as the whole. They're useful in modeling structures, such as snowflakes, in which similar patterns recur at progressively smaller scales, and in describing partly random or chaotic phenomena, such as crystal growth 
and galaxy formation. It's not the kind of sentence that spews out of my mouth ordinarily, but what it does say is that because of the pattern, because of the patterns that you can see in the shapes, we can look at a shape and we can, that, that looks pretty random. You know, snowflake doesn't look like that when it falls on your hand, does it? We can look at a shape that's pretty random or the universe and we can know what it looked like way, way back at its tiniest point or we can look back, look forward and see what it's going to look like because we recognize the patterns. As Christians, we don't just point towards hope, home, aimlessly. I'm not chasing fantasies when I tell you that heaven's a real place and you should really focus on it. We look back as we look at creation and we can see God's handiwork in eternity past. We can see the hallmarks of him all over it. We look at his people and we can see him make a promise right at the start of his word and we can see him keep it. We see him keep it. We see him keep it again. The more you read it, the more you see him keep his promises until you see Jesus and then you go, man alive. He's kept his promises. We can look at our own lives and see people like lost miles away from God, yet by his grace, slowly transformed. We realize that he's working his miracle even within us, slowly changing us, forgiving us, moving us bit by bit. Because we do all that, because we see this pattern, we can look forward. We can look forward with increasing joy and confidence the more that we see the patterns and the hallmarks of his handiwork. So yeah, no matter how chaotic and random the day is, no matter how tricky the circumstances, no matter how grim you feel on Monday morning, you can look to the future and you can scream heaven. You can bank on it. You can rest in it. That's the first part of the psalm. second part of the psalm will be much quicker, I promise. That's kind of what God's done and where it leaves us. And the second part of the psalm, verse 4 through to 6, kind of goes, so this is kind of how you should live. In light of that, this is maybe how you should be. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like the streams in the Negev. Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. And we asked that question at the start. Is it po- what, what is the point in why are Christians sad? What do we do with that sadness? This psalm suggests to us that sorrows really count. They are almost essential on the journey. And it sort of says, flip side of that, it sort of says, you can really miss stuff. If you don't spend time with God in the sorrows, then man, you can really waste, there's this idea that you can really waste sorrows in this psalm. It's the, there's a few pictures going on, but it's the picture of the Negev River. So from what I can figure out, for the most part, you'd go to this river and there's no water in it. It looks dead and it looks barren. It looks like there's nothing there. And there's just this like huge frustration. And yet, what people know of this river is that the rains come and this thing will flood. And there's another picture as well of a person who soars in a, in a barren climate, look, looking out, I guess, at the Negev when there's no water there and saying, I'm just not, not going to grow anything. Just... The reality of this is surely nothing's going to grow here. I'm taking out my seed, I'm chucking it in the ground, but is really anything going to grow here? And yet, yet the Negev floods 
This is the message. And these sorrows are going to be turned to joy. So the first little part, first little thing I want to say, the easy one is nothing that we do now, and I say this with great confidence, increasing confidence, nothing that we do now in Jesus' name, nothing that we do now for him will, will not be more than worth it in eternity future. Even the tiniest little, even the little seed that you fling out thinking that's just going to die, isn't it? That's going to go nowhere. Even that, even the kind of little thing that you mentioned to your person who sits next to you at work, even the little thing, even the time when you just make this, your own little promise to God and try and align yourself with him. It will come to fruition. But, this is the real awesome thing. It's even more than that. It speaks of even more than just, you know, this, we think of heaven as this layaway, this thing that's coming in the future, this inheritance thing. This psalm, so read, it, read into verse 6, this psalm says, it's got an awesome impact for us right now. It says in verse 6, let me read it out, those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. It almost makes it sound to me like the activity of going out to sow with sorrow, knowing that it's going to be tough. If you're still deliberately doing that, that's going to strengthen you up. If you're going out to sow, even though it looks, everything looks around about it, you're like, nothing's going to come of it. If, if you're actively serving God, if you're active in your faith, even though it looks like there's nothing there, there is strength in that moment. If you're with God in the sorrows, how is that possible? Come on, Ash, don't just say that and expect me to go, great, well, then I'll crack on. How is that possible? I think it's a little bit like, I don't know if you've seen the, I go out running, it's, it gets messier and messier the longer I go, I need good tunes or some, I've had it, but people that, I had a guy overtake me the other day with weights in his backpack, just was soul destroying, I wanted to kick him as he went past, ridiculous, what are you doing? But this guy's deliberately putting weights on, why is he deliberately putting weights on? Because when he takes them weights off when he gets back, He's not just going to have done a better workout than me. He's going to have done like five times a better workout than me. God says to us in this psalm, when we are with him in the sorrows, like when we don't duck the sorrows in our, in our route with him, in, in the times when life just gets really rubbish and we're still there going, God, what's happening? God, what's happening? When we're with him in those moments, then it's like we're getting trained up. There is benefit for us. Those who go out with weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy. And Paul says in Corinthians, and he's talking to Christians, I guess, who are losing heart, maybe even losing the will to live. He says, therefore, we don't lose heart, though outwardly we're wasting away. Inwardly, we're being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Um, the psalmist says to us, don't overlook these sorrows. Don't waste these sorrows. No sorrow that you're going through is bigger than the benefit of clinging to God in it. So it's the psalm of two halves. Can we place too much hope in heaven? Might feel like it on Monday morning, but the psalmist says no. Can we waste our sorrows? Yeah. 
It's glory for God, even in the toughest of times.